Good morning, church. If you'll take your copy of God's Word after that wonderful song of our deliverance and turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. There are a number of songs we sing at Christ the King that I just feel a, a special liking to and a significant power, it seems like, in the, the unseen realm that we talked about last week. I can't imagine the forces of darkness enjoying our singing of that song very much. Praise the Lord. If you'll turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 9. Last week we concluded with verse 6. And this week we'll begin with verse 7 and go to verse 21. You are Yahweh God who chose Abram and brought him out from Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and cut a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanite, of the Hittite and the Amorite, of the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite, to give it to his seed. And you have established your promise, for you are righteous. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. Then you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted presumptuously toward them and made a name for yourself as it is this day. You split the sea before them, so they passed through the midst of the sea on dry land. And their pursuers you cast into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. And with a pillar of cloud you led them by day and with a pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. Then you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. You gave them upright judgments and true laws, good statutes and commandments. So you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded to them commandments, statutes, and law by the hand of your servant, Moses. You gave bread from heaven for them for their hunger and brought forth water from a rock for them for their thirst. And you said to them to enter in order to possess the land which you swore to give them. But they, our fathers, acted presumptuously. They became stiff-necked and would not listen to your commandments. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds which you did among them. So they became stiff-necked and gave themselves a chief to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of lavish forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And you did not forsake them. Even when they made for themselves a molten calf and said, This is your God who brought you up from Egypt and committed great blasphemies. But you, in your abundant compassion, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. You gave your good spirit to give them insight. Your manna you did not withhold from their mouth. And you gave them water for their thirst. 
Indeed, 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they did not lack. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet swell. And thus far is the reading of the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And now, as we always do, we'll ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Father, we thank you this morning that in your grace and in your mercy, you have been kind to us to choose us from among the nations as your own. And in the midst of our continuing sin, all of which has been put under Christ, you have remained patient and faithful to us, your people. And for this we are thankful. But today... We need to be reminded, as we find ourselves providentially in this text this morning, we need to be reminded again of those truths, of your glorious election of your people and your preservation of them to the end. So feed us this morning in your word, and we ask this in the name of Jesus our Savior, amen. Well... Beloved, in the middle of the Tyrrhenian Sea, off the coast of Italy, and amongst the Aeolian island chain, high atop a massive vertical crag of stone, stands the Strombolicio Lighthouse. It was constructed in 1925 at the peak of a now dormant volcano. The signal tower, reaching over 200 feet above sea level, along with the one-story keeper's house, is still in operation today, but without any human involvement. The lantern is completely automated. It's powered by solar energy. And it consistently shines its three white flashes every 15 seconds, each of which are visible 11 nautical miles away. The steep elevation of the island makes the outpost practically invisible to anyone glancing across the Mediterranean horizon in the middle of the day. But in the dark of night, when it is most needed, its presence is unmistakable. And as it closes in on its first century of life, its light is still, without the help of man, consistently And constantly shining. Though our God is unseen, the immovable ruler of all that is visible and invisible has his eyes always fixed on his children. Like the Strombolicio lighthouse, the favorable face of El Shaddai shines unwaveringly on his people for their good from age to age. He is present in both the darkness and the light, and he will, if necessary, rebuke both wind and waves in defense of his bride. He's not afraid to rebuke her either, but he promised, he gave his word, that his loving kindness would never depart from her regardless of her remaining sin, because he chose her as his own in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. 
Well, last week, I briefly mentioned uh, the theme of this entire prayer that we find here in Nehemiah chapter 9. It's a prayer of confession. And to be most specific, it is a, a prayer of double confession to Yahweh. The people of Israel are confessing the ancestral sins of their forefathers. Chief among them, you'll see this morning, is the sin of presumption. But they're also confessing the glory and grace of God who chose, promised, saved, and sustained them in spite of all of that sin. That's the meta-narrative of Nehemiah chapter 9. That's the big story. That's what these people have gathered together to say. That the God who created everything is in fact a saving God. And that He saves in spite of our sin. And that His salvation is based on His own sovereign choice. This divine right to choose has not in any way been influenced by a foreknowledge of what His people will do with regard to their good works, their repentance, their putting their faith in the Lord. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him, that is Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love, by, how did He accomplish this? Predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ Himself, according to, not to our good works, but to the good pleasure of God's own goodwill. And to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He graciously bestowed on us in the Beloved. Well, we'll see this morning in the text that election is a biblical truth. It is everywhere in the Bible, both the Old and New Testaments. And we also see it written into the fabric of our very human nature. Two Saturdays ago at the men's marriage bed talk, I told the men that out of an average 3 million DNA options provided by a husband during the act of copulation, scientists have observed a strange phenomenon. Which one of these specimens responsible for the fertilization process is not determined by its health, its speed, or its strength? It appears to be, as far as the science tells us, completely random. Scientists today thus conclude that the egg itself must be the one that makes the final choice. Christians should, and hopefully do, know better though. It is in the divine counsels of the Ancient of Days that the choice of each particular DNA combination leading to the creation of an immortal soul is where the decision is actually made. Our God has the freedom to choose whose will be His the same way that He chooses who we will become at the moment of our conception. And that sovereign choice is, as I mentioned, front and center in this morning's text. In verse 7 we read, You are Yahweh God, who, notice, chose Abram and, secondly, brought him out from Ur of the Chaldees, and finally, 
gave him the name Abraham. Three things to see here. Chosen, delivered, and named. Chosen, delivered, and named. All of which were done entirely by Yahweh. Where is the work on Abraham's part? You don't see any. He did nothing to deserve being chosen by God. But God chose him entirely of his own volition because he, Yahweh, in his divine knowledge and wisdom and pleasure, delighted in Abram. That's why he chose. Before the foundation of the world, the Lord delighted in Abram. He didn't look into the future to see if Abram would freely choose to believe in Yahweh. And then God quickly ran over to the book of life and scribbled his name down. Abram chose God, but it was only because God first chose him. Let me read from our statement of faith, point number two under the heading election. It states this. Election is God's eternal choice of some persons unto everlasting life, not based on anything God foresaw in the sinner, but based entirely on His mercy to choose them. Acts 13.48 states, As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Romans 8.29 states that those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Romans 11 verse 7 says that Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect, in fact, did obtain it, but the rest were hardened. One of my favorite passages on the doctrine of election is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, which says this in verses 4 and 5. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. How do they know that? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. God had chosen them, and this was manifested through the work of God, through the Spirit, in the lives of those Thessalonian believers. Now that we're on the topic of the proof of election... Look at verses 7 and 8 in Nehemiah chapter 9. Verse 7, we just read, You are Yahweh God who chose Abram. This is a summary of Genesis chapter 12. And then at the end of verse 7, it says, And you gave him the name Abraham. Now, God naming Abraham didn't happen until Genesis chapter 17. But look at the first part of verse 8 in our passage this morning. It states that Abraham was found faithful before you, that is, Yahweh. Now, why is that interesting to me? Because that took place in Genesis 15. So the song that's being recited in Nehemiah chapter 9 doesn't go in chronological order. It goes from Genesis 12 to Genesis 17, and then it goes back to Genesis 15. Rather than retelling Abraham's story chronologically, the Levites have arranged it theologically. Let me explain what I mean. God's choice, deliverance, and naming of Abraham 
are front and center. They all come first. And after God's part, according to the Holy Spirit's inspired arrangement of this text, Abraham was found faithful. And why did they do it this way? It's because the spotlight stays and must stay decidedly on the action of Yahweh God. He is in control. And therefore, he gets all the glory. As Reformed Christians, we say frequently, soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. One of the things I remember the Basswood elders frequently saying from the pulpit, which was always very encouraging to me, was when they reminded the congregation, if we, those in Christ, are partially responsible for our salvation, God will get some of the glory. If we contribute a little bit to our salvation, then God will get most of the glory. But if we contribute nothing to our salvation, God, in fact, gets all the glory. And this is actually confirmed by Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 8, right here in front of you. If you look at the end of that verse, you, Yahweh, have established your promise through the faithfulness of Abraham. But you, Yahweh, have established your promise for you are righteous. I love the LSB's rendering of the word seed in verse 8 rather than the ESV's use of the word offspring. Offspring can communicate perhaps a singular or plural recipient. But as you know, Paul in Galatians 3 tells us that the covenant that God made with Abraham was to be inherited by not a plural, but a single individual. So to be as specific as we can, the returned exiles are singing a prayer and confessing without fully comprehending it the glory of the one seed who would inherit the promise, and that is Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting that to this point in our study of Ezra and Nehemiah, even prior to this, throughout the entire Old Testament, Israel has never quite been able to get the narrative right. The judges got it wrong. The priests got it wrong. The kings very frequently got it wrong. There were prophets who were saying the right things under the inspiration of the Spirit, but they had no idea what they were talking about. They were longing to see the fulfillment. And yet here, in the reconstituted Israel brought out of the second exodus, delivered from their bondage to slavery in Babylon, this congregation is shouting together the plan of God to save His people. And they appear to understand, to a greater extent than it seems ever before, what God is really up to in this larger story of redemption. Now you've got to come to terms with this, church. Our God is... In fact, sovereign over everything. Psalm 103. Yahweh has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. Psalm 115. But our God is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. Not shifting around with the decisions of man and shuffling His chess pieces on the board. Jesus 
we're told in Hebrews chapter 1, himself upholds all things by the word of his power. Christ is, as we read in Colossians 1 last week, before all things, and in him alone all things hold together. If, Job said in Job chapter 34, he should set his heart on it, and he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would breathe its last simultaneously, and man would return to the dust. If God just did that, it would all be over. And from Romans chapter 9, He, that is God, has mercy on whom He desires. And He hardens whom He desires. Someone will likely respond, Then it's not fair for Him to find fault in us, for who can resist His will? Interesting you mention that. Because I think an appropriate answer would be, who are we, beloved, to answer back to God? What right has the clay over the potter to tell him how to do his job? Church, when is the last time you praised God for his electing love of you? He chose each of you, just like Abram, out of a life of idolatry and demon worship. He delivered you through the blood of Christ and gave you a new name, which is a family name. His family name. So that the forces of darkness in the unseen realm all now know that one's mine. I can't think of anything more glorious than the truth that we are chosen by God. The Muslims can't claim that. The Mormons can't claim that. The atheists can't. Nor can the Watchtower folks. Nor the Hindus. Nor the animists. Nor the Wiccans. Nor the millionaires. Nor the corporate execs. Or the models or the movie stars. Or the poor guy asking for money on the corner of Maine and Charles Seavers. Your lost neighbor cannot go down to the store and buy some election. And the citizens of Anderson County won't win it in the Tennessee lottery. If you slow down long enough to really consider the gravity of this truth, it was never, nor has it ever been, not one single scintilla of a second in your life, in your power, or your persona, or your prestige, to win over God's heart. We sing this song that says, Relentless love embraced my soul in ages past. Love undeserved, unknown, yet deep and vast. God set his love on me, on me in spite of me. Salvation's work is his from first to last. Christ the King, stop and consider the glory of God's electing love for you. It eviscerates pride while at the same time breathes contentment in the midst of our varied circumstances. John Calvin once said, the doctrine of election and predestination, it is useful, necessary, and 
most sweet. Ignorance of it impairs the glory of God, plucks up humility by the roots, and begets and fosters pride. Where we would think we grow in pride because God chose us. If we remember rightly, he did not choose us from anything in us, but because he alone delighted in us, it was his electing choice. It actually destroys pride. This doctrine, Calvin continues, establishes the certainty of salvation, peace of conscience, anyone struggling with assurance, and the true origin of the church. Just think, beloved, you did not make this choice. God did. And there was nothing that you did, are doing, or will ever do that will make God change his mind. I think about these pictures all the time. The Lamb's Book of Life, and here's God with a pencil in his hand. With the eraser pointed down. Might need to make some changes. Never crossed his mind. That book has always had our names in it, always will have our names in it for eternity. Now consider the people who haven't been chosen. Consider that there's nothing that they can do to be chosen. Consider that their eternal destiny in the divine counsels of God, unbeknownst to us, but in the presence of Yahweh, is set. This last week, Tammy ran into the wife of our former college pastor when she and I were in a college ministry. This man, our college pastor, was once a missionary, and he's one of the most dedicated individuals to the local ministry of the church in Knoxville that she and I know of. He's a very dedicated Christian. Serves very, very well. When we were both in youth group, Tammy and I, we were roughly the same age as his son and his daughter. His son was actually in in our class. And both of those two young people were outspoken followers of Jesus. They were highly respected in our youth ministry. And it was expected by the whole church that they would eventually do great things for Christ. Oh, look at their dad. Missionaries serving in the community. These two love the Lord. They're going to do amazing things for Christ. And they went off to college and went through apparently, both of them, separate times, but a period of deconstruction. And they are no longer walking with the Lord today. At this point, from our vantage point, it would appear that they've gone out from us because they're not actually, in fact, one of us. Consider how horrid is the thought of not being one of God's elect. How precious to be in the fold of Christ and to know His divine choice to love us. You today in this church, sitting here this morning, who have refused to bow the knee to Christ, today is the day to repent. You may not get another chance. Trust Him, as the song says. Trust Him. Only trust Him. If you respond by saying, but how will I know if He's chosen me? I would answer by saying, if you are outside of Christ, that is none of your business. That's the question that Satan uses to distract those who have received the seed of the gospel. He does this 
so that he can have enough time to send the ravens by and pluck the gospel seed up from the soil of their hearts. Are you dead in your trespasses and sins? Are you without hope and God in the world? Do you need to be reconciled to Christ? Then hear the command of Jesus and come. Jesus is the door of the sheep. All who enter in are, in fact, the sheep of Christ. Spurgeon once said, and I'm going to paraphrase this, that above the door of Christ are written the words, Repent and believe the gospel. And those who do enter will turn around and look up and on the back side of the door find it written, Chosen in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. Today is the day, you young people in this church who are persisting in your sin and resisting the Lord. Hell is real and everlasting. And it is for God's glory that it exists. Because of your sin, you will one day be bringing God glory eternally by suffering forever for your crimes against Him. But Christ has made a way, and it doesn't have to be damnation. Because Christ has won the victory over sin and death and hell, give your allegiance to Him this day. As we continue on with the passage, looking now to verse 9, Yahweh has made His choice of a people. He has made promises to His people. And then Yahweh makes good on those promises and saves His people. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, verse 9, and heard their cry by the Red Sea. This is one of those moments in the Scriptures where if you know the whole narrative of the Bible, you might think, did we miss a few events here? That escalated quickly. They went straight from Genesis 17 to Exodus chapter 1. What about Isaac and Ishmael? What about Esau and Jacob? What about the 12 tribes and the caravan to Egypt? It's almost as if, if you're not careful, you might think, that they didn't think that that stuff was very important. They just fast-forwarded right through it. But this is a prayer, remember, confessing how great Yahweh is. He has the power to create, to choose, to make promises, but can he back his promises up? When you go from verse 8 to verse 9, it's almost as if God rounds a corner and finds his girl pinned in a dark alley by a bunch of thugs. Now wait a sec. That's my girl. You don't touch my girl. Then you perform signs and wonders against Pharaoh against all his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted presumptuously toward them and made a name for yourself as it is this day. You see the, the impetus behind skipping material because you want to get right to the point where no hesitation, God sees his bride suffering, boom, he comes in without delay and saves her. Yes, the people of the first exodus were enslaved for 400 years but the way that this prayer comes at you, it's like God went into action immediately. Boom, signs and wonders, a summary of, of course, the ten plagues that happened in the early parts of Exodus. Egypt, then, is left in ruins. After the absolute whooping that Yahweh laid out, 
his bride in his arms, he makes his exit stage left. And for some foolish reason, the Egyptians pursue. Again, immediately, you split the Red Sea before them, so they pass through the midst on dry land. And their pursuers you cast into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. Right before I got up here this morning, we all sang the Song of Moses together. And verse 11 is actually a compilation of three verses from that passage in Exodus chapter 15. Verses 4, 5, and 19. All put together there in verse 11. The hubris of the Egyptians here is unfathomable. Yahweh has destroyed the nation, fields, and people of Egypt. There are dead boys in every household in Egypt. The Egyptians were utterly helpless to stop him. So guys, what do you think? If we attack him from behind, do you think we'll have the advantage? It's ludicrous. This reminds me of a meme I saw years ago when the movie Taken, starring Liam Neeson, was released. You all probably know that Liam has a prolific acting career. And he always seems to be cast in the roles of absolute beast, could have been Chuck Norris kind of role. The meme I remember said something like, he saved over a thousand Jews from the Nazis. He trained Obi-Wan Kenobi, Darth Vader, and Batman. He was the leader of Mr. T and the entire A-team. He played both Zeus and Aslan, essentially making him God in two religions. And he's also punched wolves. So why would you try to kidnap his daughter? I mean, I get the sense that these exiles are saying something similar here. God did all of this in Egypt. Why are you chasing after him? Why do you still think that you can win? Verse 10. We get the reason. They acted presumptuously. I'll say. As if this isn't God's girl anymore. As if he is too weak to help her now. As if ownership of her subtly changed. Or the divorce papers came in and she was fair game. God said, no, that's my girl. Get your hands off of my girl. Now you know, beloved, that there is a temptation for us in the moments of our greatest trials to believe the whispers of the slanderer. God has forgotten about you. He's turned his back on you. He isn't interested in fighting for you any longer. Some of you have been praying for deliverances for years. You have been seeking healing from a specific malady, waiting for a companion to get married to. Prayers go unanswered year after year after year. But look at Nehemiah 9. Boom, there he is. He jumps in and takes action. Church, that is the God that we serve. Our God is faithful to his promises. He will come for his own. Here are two things that you can do immediately to get your mind in submission to the reality that God can act now for you. First, start building altars of praise in this wilderness that you're in. 
Force yourself to stop in the busyness of the day and pray out loud, I would encourage, thanksgivings to God and sing of His faithfulness. Remember, worship is warfare. You are building something in that moment that will beat back the lies and darkness of those forces in the unseen realm and give solidity to the moment that you will look back on and see how God led you through a variety of different trials. We were on our way home last night from a get-together and we stopped and thought of things that we could be thankful for in hopes that we would establish a moment there together in the truck on the way home, our family could remember we built an altar. We stopped and thanked the Lord. We'll look back on that one day and say, God has been with us. The second thing I would encourage you to do is, easier said than done, but start believing that God will answer your prayers. Jesus taught in Mark chapter 11, For this reason I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask. He said all things. Believe that you have received them and they will be granted to you. I know this makes some people uncomfortable. Well, we don't want to go down the name it and claim it road. So what we do instead is go into our prayers with a lack of assurance that God will answer. Which is completely the opposite of what Jesus is trying to teach us. You come into the Wednesday night prayer meeting. And you can know with all the confidence of the word of God. That your creator and elector and promise maker sees the affliction of you. And that he will answer. Here's a retelling of that story right here in front of us this morning. Stop giving God excuses in prayer for why he shouldn't answer you. Oh, Father, I am so unworthy. Oh, Father, I don't know your will, so only if it's your will. Just stop. Look at this passage. This God saves his people when they cry out to him. That's what they're saying here. Stop worrying about the timeline or the seeming delays. He is, in fact, faithful to his promises. Listen to how God just keeps keeping his word. In verse 12, he led her by the pillars of fire and cloud in the wilderness. In verse 13, he brought her to Mount Sinai and gave her the rules of the marriage covenant. In verse 14, he commanded her rest one day in seven that she might follow in the steps of the one who bought her. In verse 15, he fed her, quenched her thirst, told her to go into the land that he had promised and make herself at home. And what was God doing in all of this? Back in verse 10. Making a name for himself. As it is this day. So great a name that the glory of it would last from the first exodus all the way to the second. Everybody in the world at that time. That's what that's saying. Your name is still great. People are still talking about what you did. That deliverance, people are still chatting about it. They're still going on about that exodus. And our God is just as great today as he was back then. There's a song lyric that I've had in my head all week long as I've been preparing this message. Remember that fear that took your breath away. Faith so weak that we could barely pray. But he heard, 
every word and every whisper. Now those altars in the wilderness tell the story of his faithfulness. Never once did he fail, and he never will. And lest we forget what Israel contributed to this whole process, let's look at verse 16. It says what they added to this story was their own presumption. Now you may have noticed that that's the exact same sin that the Egyptians are accused of from verse 10 of our passage this morning. But there's a pretty significant difference. In verse 10, the Egyptians sinned against Israel, acting presumptuously against them. They presumed against man. But Israel, you read in this verse, has presumed against God Almighty. This is followed by two verses containing a litany of sins, the people of God. In verse 16, they refused to keep His commandments. Verse 17, they refused to listen to Him. Also in verse 17, they forgot His marvelous deeds and became obstinate or stiff-necked. They determined to return to slavery in Egypt. Again, verse 17. By the way, for freedom Christ has set you free. Therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Sounds like Paul had this event in his mind in Galatians chapter 5. In verse 18, they made an idol. By the way, it's no wonder that the people became stiff-necked. You become what you worship. Psalm 115 verse 8. In verse 18, they claimed that idol as their God and blasphemed God in other ways. And this is fascinating. God's response was again overwhelming mercy. Lavish forgiveness. Verse 17. Grace, compassion, slowness to anger, abundant love and kindness, a refusal to forsake His people. In verse 19, both the pillar of cloud and fire remained. He didn't take them away. In verse 20, the gift of the Spirit was given so that they might have insight into the law of God. They were given manna for food, water from the rock for drink. Forty years elapsed. And in verse 21, we find that the chosen people of God, in spite of all of their sin, did not lack anything. No loss of clothing. They were protected from weariness. And they were sustained entirely, all of it done, by Yahweh their God. It's almost terrifying how relentless God is in pursuit of us. In this passage, there's actually a really powerful Hebrew chiasm in this short section that we're looking at. A chiasm is a form of poetry which is illustrated by the letter X, where ideas are given which lead to a climax, and then it's followed by a repeating of those initial ideas. Point number one, God gives. In verse 12, He gives guidance. In verse 13 and 14, he gives laws. And in verse 15, he gives provisions. Point number two, the center of the chiasm. Israel responds with great sin. Verses 16 to 18. Point number three, God doesn't stop giving. 
In verse 19, he gives more guidance. In verse 20, he gives the Spirit to explain the law. And in verse 21, he gives more provisions. He never stopped. He never abandoned his promise. He never quit on his people, even though they were ready to walk away from him and quit on him. Now, as I close, I want to say two things. First off, beloved, the sin of presumption is a very real and deadly thing. Noah Webster has five different entries for the word, ranging from arrogance to headstrong confidence or lacking factual evidence and also an unreasonable confidence in divine favor. Think about for just a minute how our radically individualized and self-aggrandizing society has, in a sense, industrialized the growth of the sin of presumption in our generation like never before. Presumption leads men to think more highly of themselves than they ought to think and prompts them to speak in a conversation where they should really keep silent. And instead, they drone on like a schoolboy who's never been taught that many words mark the speech of a fool. That's from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 3. Presumption compels women to think so highly of their own convictions that they are given a carte blanche excuse to disobey the wishes of their husband because he's in the wrong, and I'm not going to sin against God. He needs to deal with his own sin. And she has to take the higher road. And she must obey God rather than men. Just like Lady Folly, however, her presumptuous behavior is tearing down her own house with her own hands. God designated and designed men to be doers. Not to fear greatness, but to seek it by good deeds done in the service of others. As one country musician once said, a little less talk, boys, and a lot more action. God created women to submit to imperfect, and yes, God created women to submit to sinful men. He gives no qualification to wives that their husbands must be repentant before the wife is to obey, but to submit to them in the same way that the church submits to Jesus Christ. And as we went through in 1 Peter last year, 1 Peter chapter 3, even if some husbands do not obey the word, they can, and the Bible even says they will be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. There are other areas where presumption reigns, and it would be a good topic at a fellowship meal to sit down together and discuss where else do we see the sin of presumption in our own lives? How do we hate it? The people of Israel didn't seem to care very much that their presumption was defiance of God. But I want to come back to the whole point of this passage once again. Nothing is going to stop our God from keeping His word. He is the immovable mover of all things. The election of God breeds contentment, as Calvin says. It enables men to keep their mouths closed and women to say yes, sir, to their husbands with a smile and actually mean it. Because of this, the one impossible thing, and yet the one most necessary thing in all of human history, that we be reconciled to God, 
has been accomplished for God's own glory in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's been applied to each of us at the moment of our faith and believing in Christ because in the divine counsels of God, before the foundation of the worlds, he said, I want that one. No more eternal needs. We don't have any more. That's it. All of our needs are met in the blood of Christ. All our troubles in this temporary world can, in fact, in light of that, be light and momentary. And when it feels like your faith will fail, like the ship of your soul is going to run aground on the rocks of damnation, Yahweh is still there. As unseen, much more so in fact, than the Strombolicio lighthouse, but completely in control, shining a fatherly favor on you that will, in fact, never be extinguished. Father, there are some truths that we come to in the scripture that our minds will be searching out for all eternity. And your electing love certainly must be one of those things. Oh, how kind for you to choose us, all worthless, sinful, lost in utter darkness. And yet, as it said in Ezekiel, you walked by and said, Be alive, live, you're mine. We thank you for this extravagant kindness. And may in the people of this church in the coming weeks, the truth of the solidity of that choice in each of us breed the contentment that we have been longing for, causing us to rest and abide in Christ regularly and in his courtly love of us, reminding us that this has always been the intention of the Trinitarian mind, and that even today our bridegroom prepares a place for us. We long for his return. And now as we go to the table, let us think on that love again. In Jesus' name, amen.